0: Fog everywhere. Fog up the river, where it flows among green eights and meadows. Fog down the river, where it rolls defiled among the tiers of shipping and the waterside pollutions of a great and dirty city. Fog on the Essex marshes. Fog on the Kentish heights. Fog creeping into the cabooses of collier brigs. Fog lying out on the yards and hovering in the rigging of great ships. Fog drooping on the gunwales of barges and small boats. Fog in the eyes and throats of ancient Greenwich pensioners, wheezing by the firesides of their wards. Fog in the stem and bowl of the afternoon pipe of the wrathful skipper, down in his close cabin. Fog cruelly pinching the toes and fingers of his shivering little apprentice boy on deck. John's people on the bridges, peeping over the parapets into a nether sky of fog, with fog all round them, as if they were up in a balloon and hanging in the misty clouds. Never can there come fog too thick, never can there come mud and mire too deep, to assault with the groping and floundering condition which this high court of chancery, most pestilent of hoary sinners, holds this day in the sight of heaven and earth. Bleak House by Charles Dickens
1: hey Lindsay. hey quinn are you ready to talk about environmental health
2: oh yeah for sure but first i want to let our listeners know about our stickers oh yeah So, the first 100 people who subscribe to our email list, which is on our website, will get their very own viral sticker designed by our in-house graphic designer.
1: Don't you mean you? I do. (laughs) Also, one lucky subscriber will win a viral t-shirt.
0: Sweet.
1: Yup. Also... Your intrepid hosts, Lindsay and I, will be attending the upcoming World Social Marketing Conference in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned for an episode about social marketing. And if you are going to the conference, come find us. We'll be uh, wandering around.
2: Also, one last thing before we get started, um, along with our website, www. .viral-pod.com, you can learn more about the show and receive updates about our new episodes and contact us by liking our Facebook page and following us on Twitter at Viral Podcast. And please tell your friends.
1: Also, please review us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show and it helps us make sure we're putting together something worth listening to.
2: Okay, I think that's everything. So
0: let's do this.
1: Let's do it. For a long time, people in London used coal to heat their homes and to power factories. It was relatively inexpensive. It worked. Households mostly burned the cheapest coal, which had a lot of dust. In the days before central heating, a fire was the only way to heat the rooms and was often used to boil water and cook food. But it also had some interesting and deadly side effects. On December 5th, 1952, a fog so thick that you couldn't see a yard in front of you, let alone the other side of the street, formed a thick smog over the city in London. A band of high pressure had settled over London, holding the pollution in place like a layer of oil over water. Household fires contributed greatly, but they weren't the only ones. The smog was also the result of a deadly climate cocktail made by coal-fired factories diesel fumes from trucks and buses, and clouds of pollution drifting across the channel from other industrial centers in Europe. The scale of the pollution was incredible. Every day, chimneys in London discharged 1,000 tons of smoke, emitted 2,000 tons of carbon dioxide, and 140 tons of hydrochloric acid. Yum. Yep. Yep. Even more deadly, 800 tons of sulfuric acid spewed from chimneys when moisture in the air mixed with sulfur dioxide. Hmm. The acid burned the back of the throat, bringing on choking fits. It caused inflammation of the lungs, especially in children and the elderly. In the East End, people couldn't see their own feet. Buses stopped running because they couldn't clean the greasy, yellow-tinted grime off of their windshields, And even if they could, the drivers wouldn't be able to see the road in front of them to drive very far anyways.
2: Wait, this was in the 1950s? Yep. Wow. I really Mm -hmm. for a second thought you were talking about the, like, 1800s. Nope,
1: 1952. I mean, uh, smog and fog in London wasn't a new thing, but this was an especially bad one. Yeah. The smog oozed indoors and left a black grime over everything. Theaters canceled performances because everyone inside kept choking and the performers couldn't stop coughing. Five days later, the skies cleared and all that was left was an oily residue on every building, car, and tree. The first rain washed grime into the gutters, which now flowed yellow and putrid into the sewers. On December 9th, 4,000 people were dead from respiratory problems as a result of the plume. Wow. Wow. Some estimates say the death toll from this week alone is closer to 12,000. And because it's England we're talking about here, they of course gave it a cute name, the Great Pea Soup. <laughs> Appetizing.
2: The pea super
1: of 1952 <laughs> oh, because it was so thick and green and that's yellow.
2: disgusting. Yeah. And I like pea soup, and so I, that's I like pea upsetting. soup too.
1: The Ministry of Health was first hesitant to do something, admitting that pollution was a necessary evil for civilized society. However, this crisis ended up motivating Parliament to enact the Clean Air Acts of 1956 and 1968, which reduced pollution in the cities of England by creating smokeless zones, moving power plants out of the cities, and introducing cleaner burning fuels. In the United States, the 1955 Air Pollution Control Act was the first federal legislation to address air pollution and provided funds for federal government research of air pollution. However, the first legislation here that aimed to control air pollution was the Clean Air Act of 1962. Yeah, a real pea super. That's what it was called.
0: That's... mm Mm-mm.
1: They they depicted um, this event in I think episode four of Netflix's The Crown, so you can really? actually watch. Yeah, what oh, they, look at what that. They did it on that. Um, more broadly speaking, we now re- recognize the environment's role in human health and disease a lot more than we used to. But that being said, there's still a lot of work to be done. In 1970, the Nixon administration established established the Environmental Protection Agency with, and I'll say this slowly so that it sinks in, bipartisan support from Congress.
2: Wait, oh my gosh! Yeah, that used so to be a thing.
1: It's like that retro. <laughs> Maybe okay. That's how we get bipartisan support back. It's retro. It's like
2: make it like a hipster it's thing. Like, like a hipster this is like thing. a vintage sort of legislative action where like. Both parties are involved, and I'm going to type that on my antique typewriter with um, my suspenders
1: on. I'm going to call the majority whip using, like, an old rotary phone. (laughs) Actually, they probably (laughs) still use those.
2: Yeah, they probably do. Because it is the government. They probably do.
1: They're always 20 years behind. Oh, man. Um, Anyways, the EPA has led the way in improving air quality, cleaning up waterways, Reducing harmful pesticide exposures and industrial emissions And helping states and cities support public health and the environment Folks, the EPA is so very important Yeah They work with the National Institutes of Health The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention The Food and Drug Administration The Departments of Agriculture, Defense, Interior, NASA, and more To help keep us and the environment healthy All right Let's just be real here. Science is the supportive and driving foundation upon which public health relies, and environmental health workers are super important. Yes, they absolutely are. A tax on science and the refusal to act on scientific evidence undermines public health and is a very real and dangerous risk to our safety. Pollution is not necessarily something that we have to just live with because it's a necessary evil of a civilized society.
2: Oh, and guess what? Pollution and negative environmental health factors do not discriminate. Yeah. Cuz everyone breathes the same air mostly.
1: Unless you we- get that fancy bottled air that you can <laughs> bring to China. Did you hear about that?
2: Yes, I did. Ooh, boy. That's a thing now. I know,
1: and that's a real thing, which is even crazier. So, Lindsay, uh, how has the field of environmental health affected you?
2: Well, um, I know with our – we're going to talk more about, you know, the Flint water crisis because I'm originally from Michigan. So um, hearing about what was happening in Flint, while it was obviously terrible, it was also not surprising because, unfortunately, environmental health – Has a lot of health disparities. Different communities are exposed to different things. And actually, one of the things that has affected me personally is I grew up on a farm. So, you know, there's all sorts of issues with pesticide exposure, um, occupational health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are some things, like, as an adult, now I think about obviously I didn't think about that as a kid, but, you know, there's all sorts of stuff that I was probably exposed to Like living on a farm, whether that was, you know, like I said, pesticide, fertilizer, or um, when you're harvesting crops, there's dust. And people don't think like, oh, it's just like natural dust, whatever. But those are still things that cause disease like COPD or, you know, Mm. respiratory issues. So,
1: And when your mom said... Close the door. This isn't a barn. It was actually a barn. Yeah, it was. And it was actually the barn door.
2: Yeah, she was. That was a literal statement. <laughs>
1: uh, and we have today uh, an interview with Dr. Rosner. After this um, little chat, and we're going to talk with him about lead. So, Lindsay, uh, how many lead toys did you lick as a child?
2: <laughs> um, I'm. I'm not sure. Um, but I think I'm doing okay. So maybe not too many to affect me, you know,
1: a lot. Yeah.
2: I have to ask my mom.
1: I I wonder sometimes how many buildings and stuff I've been in where there was asbestos in the, um, in the insulation and lead paint on the walls and, you know, old, old, uh, pipes that are, you know, bringing in water that may have random things in it.
2: So, actually, my grandfather on my mom's side died of mesothelioma, which is a result of asbestos exposure.
1: That's not just something that you hear about on TV and between um, cable news segments.
2: No, that's a real thing. Yeah, he died of uh, mesothelioma. Oh, so
1: that that is actually very sad. No, well, <laughs> I'm so
2: yeah, no, it's okay. But no, I, you know, you don't think about that until you realize, like, wow, that was from an environmental exposure.
1: Yeah. So, and, and so now, like we talked about the EPA here, but a lot of environmental health is done at the local level. And we have people uh, who work at local health departments who test, um, they take water samples. For, for instance, in Florida, I know that we, we take water samples outside in the Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. um, to test for bacteria uh, and in pools. And we test wells. We um, obviously have indoor air quality people. And actually, we got our utilities bill uh, last week. And there was uh, the 2016 water quality report for our city. No way. And I thought, oh, this is pretty timely because um, we're recording this episode about environmental health. And so I opened it up and I looked at it. And it actually will tell you – like the lead levels, and it will tell you all of these other, you know, chlorine and and all these other chemicals, and what what they're actually reading in your city. Um, so, are I you was still kind
2: of, drinking tap water? or You bottle water now. Uh,
1: you know, only the purest Evian. What no,
2: uh, mm. our tap water
1: is is safe. Yes, but um, I was kind of I was interested and kind of disappointed to see that like what they do is they basically. Do a survey. They mm-hmm. send out randomly um, notices asking for people to have their water tested for the study, and they sent out like 850 of them, and mm-hmm. they only got 85 what? people that said yes. Seriously? So, like, I know in in research, the um, the rate of like w- study recruitment is really hard, and it's like usually around 20 or 30 percent. But man, that's like 10 percent. Yeah. I would be like, yeah, test my water. I want oh, to see what's yeah. in there. Oh, yeah. I'd
2: be like, come on over. I guess
1: people were, I don't know, maybe they're, they didn't get the notice or they were suspicious or I, I don't know. That was interesting, though. Hmm. Yeah, so when you get your utilities bill, check that stuff. Look at it. It's pretty interesting.
2: Hmm. That is interesting because there was an article that just came out about Florida has some of the worst water in the United States or something. Oh, boy. Yeah. Anywho, but the, but you know what? Our water here is great, and I drink from the tap all the time.
1: Yeah, and, and I breathe the air because we had the Clean Air Act.
2: Yes, thank goodness.
1: Yeah. But anyways, um, yeah, we just wanted to give you a little, little taste of environmental health there. There's so many different stories oh, to yeah. be told, and maybe we'll come back and, and do another one.
2: But I think more importantly, think an environmental health worker. Yeah. Sometimes called a sanitarian or, you know.
1: They have to go to some gross places.
2: They really do. And do gross A things. A lot of poop is involved. And eventually we're going to have an episode that's all about poop.
1: So, get ready.
2: <laughs> so, so get prepare yourself for that. No, um actually one when, when I used to work at the health department, one of the ladies I worked with who did our did the indoor air quality testing, before that she tested petroleum tanks to make sure they weren't leaking into the groundwater which is kind of important. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why environmental health is mostly unseen, but vital to civilized life and health. Mic drop. (laughs) We are here today to talk to Dr. Rosner of Columbia University about environmental health, a branch of public health concerned with all aspects of the natural and built environment. That may affect human health, as well as how humans may affect the health of the environment.
1: This involves things like outdoor air quality, surface and groundwater quality, toxic substances and hazardous wastes in the air, water, soil, or food, natural and man-made disasters, physical hazards, the built environment, nutritional deficiencies, and more.
2: Environmental health workers must address the societal and environmental factors that make diseases more or less likely to thrive in human population. This is one of the fields of public health which mostly remains unseen, unless something goes wrong. Think Chernobyl, the BP oil spill, the Flint water crisis,
1: Cuyahoga river fire in 1969,
2: (laughs) or the Los Angeles smog problem of the 1970s. Problems like this took a long time to create, but often very rapidly come to a head and reach crisis mode.
1: All right. Enjoy the interview.
2: Hello? Hello?
3: Hi, hi, it's David. Hi, David. This is Lindsay.
1: Hey, this is Quinn.
3: Hi, Quinn. Uh, Lindsey, uh, can you hear me? Is this
1: working? Well? Dr. David Rosner is a professor of sociomedical science at Columbia University in New York. He also co-directs the Center for the History and Ethics of Public Health, a joint undertaking of Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health and the Department of History. He is an author of several books the most recent of which is titled Lead Wars, The Politics of Science and the Fate of America's Children. Dr. Rosner, welcome to the show.
3: Nice to meet you.
2: So to start off, uh, what interested you in public health and environmental health?
3: Well, basically, when I was undergraduate, I was a psychology undergraduate, and I decided to go and work in the State Department of Mental Hygiene uh, in order to find out what kind of psychology graduate school I wanted to go in. When I got into this, uh, when I started working in this research unit in the State Department of Mental Hygiene in New York, uh, what I realized is that the kids who were there were not kids who seemed to me to be suffering from what I had learned that psychology was, which is bad mothering, psychodynamic problems, kids Mm -hmm. who weren't loved as children. The kids who were in the institution were kids who were really physically damaged. And they were largely damaged by environmental and, uh, and dangerous. Uh, kids whose mothers and parents had were poor and who had bad nutrition. Uh, mm-hmm. Kids who had brain damage because they were lead poisoned. Um, mm-hmm. Kids who were uh, damaged at birth because of bad medical care or some kind of uh, birth defect. Uh, these were kids who had really physical problems, not psychological problems as I thought of. And that led me into public health. And I said, well, you know, public health is a really interesting field and it really is much more relevant for these kids. Uh, these kids were growing up in poverty mostly and they were being warehoused in institutions so it would have had a profound impact on me. After a while it became very frustrating because at that point um, uh, the world was changing in the 70s and resources were drying up and suddenly you found a whole kind of psych- you know, environment in which people were blaming not the society, for creating the conditions that led to kids' problems, but increasingly started blaming the kids and the parents themselves and seeing Mm -hmm. the problems rooted as individual failure of families and the fact that kids weren't being taken care of and weren't being kept away from lead and weren't weren't being cared for and loved by their parents. So you saw a whole change in the mood, and that led me to think, wow, I really had to understand um, the history of all this. How did we end up in this situation where the most obvious social problems were being redefined as problems of the kids and problems of the parents and not the problems of our culture.
1: So, you know, there's been a lot of focus on lead exposure since the Flint water crisis. And I was wondering if you could kind of um, talk about that and the most recent studies that have come out about lead exposure, um, kind of looking at the short and long-term effects.
3: Sure. Well... You know, lead is probably the best documented and the most well-researched environmental and childhood poison in American history. Uh, When you think about lead poisoning in children, you're talking about a literature, medical and public health literature that literally goes back to the turn of the last century to the early 1900s. Um, Children were being diagnosed with childhood lead poisoning because of exposure to all sorts of lead in their environment. Um, lead is in some sense, uh, and lead poisoning as a condition really emerged uh, out of the Industrial Revolution and the urbanizing and uh, uh, urban revolution of the 20th century. Yeah, so where um,
1: are people getting exposed?
3: They're getting exposed to everything we built from mm-hmm. 19, 1890 on. Uh, every city that was, you know, I don't know how much you're your listening audience knows about the history, the social history of America, but we went through this incredible urbanizing period and industrializing period between around 1880 and 19, 1930, 1940, when we basically moved from being an agricultural society where people lived on farms far away from each other in rural districts um, to being basically a population that lived in Large metropolitan areas. Uh, You know, New York City grew in in eighteen hundred had about forty five thousand or fifty thousand people. By nineteen hundred, it had over four million. Uh, Boston, Baltimore, uh, Chicago was a fort in eighteen forty one. By nineteen, it literally a fort in the wilderness in eighteen forty one. Right on the river. Right on the river. And by nineteen, you know, by nineteen hundred, it was you know it had you know it was the second largest city in the country. So you have these extraordinary urbanizing forces that are pulling people into cities where the big factories are, where the manufacturing is. And with that came an incredible boom of housing uh, in which you started seeing houses being built and tenements being built for the poor and uh, non-immigrants throughout all the urbanizing parts of the country. And it was at that point that lead became kind of a a very useful medium uh, with which to build those cities. Um, oh, okay. Lead went into all the plumbing that was being put in. You had giant aqueducts being built to bring water, let's say in New York, from the Catskill Mountains hundreds mm-hmm. of miles away down into the city uh, through pipes that went into buildings that were now you know, 10 stories and 12, and 14 stories tall. Uh, you had uh, lead being used on the walls of the nation in the form of paint that was a pigment that was going on to all these new buildings that were being put up. Uh, you had uh, lead that was being introduced into the gasoline that mm-hmm. we used in our cars. We had leaded gasoline. Uh, I don't know how, you, how old you are, but those of us who were over a certain age remember when you went to a gas pump and the only... The only gas you had was leaded gas, gas that had tetraethyl lead added to it. Then they introduced a new brand. You had two pumps at a certain point after the 70s. Uh, we had leaded and unleaded gas, and now we only have a sign that says it's unleaded gas. We no longer okay. have lead gas. But for literally 60 years, we had lead being poured into the atmosphere. So lead became ubiquitous in every child's environment. Every child lived as one. One person said, one one doctor said in 19, about 1923, he said, the problem we have now with all these children who are getting poisoned coming into our hospitals, who are going into convulsions and comas and, and dying uh, from lead poisoning is the problem is that a child lives in a lead world. That was literally mm-hmm. the quote. And is it just
1: that point. it's like naturally occurring and everywhere, or is it being... Added or was you know historically speaking was it being added because of some kind of um, properties in the metal that maybe led stability to the product it creates or um what, like what why was it in everything?
3: Well, you have to go through each individual part of the economy in some sense. Lead was found if you added it to gasoline to increase what's called the octane, the power of gasoline. It's it okay. it, it caused the even. Um, it's not that cars couldn't run off unleaded gasoline, but there was enormous interest in the early 1920s in creating big gas gasoline cars. Yeah. And during that period, Standard Oil, uh, DuPont, and General Motors all gathered together and discovered that if you add a little lead, you know, a gram of lead to a gallon of gasoline, it allowed you to build big, giant gas gasoline engines. Um, so it became the basis, let's say, you know, for the General Motors car line. Basically, yeah. uh, you started seeing the development of what became the, you know, the V six and then the V eight engines and okay, the big, yeah, you know, the big engines that could power Cadillacs and power you know cars going at huge speeds, the giant
1: tanks, yeah,
3: I mean, big tank cars, yeah. And uh, you know, before that, they had cars. I mean, the Model T Ford, right? The model, you know, the Ford was a car that. Um, ran perfectly efficiently and was built from 1908 to 1928 with literally an engine that ran off unleaded gasoline. And it went along and was very good for local traffic because it went along at 30, 40 miles an hour. And that was its We wanted cars that went really fast. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. You have this interest, and General Motors saw a real interest in developing a, a fuel that could power a car that was earmarked big and powerful for, you know, you could have the Chevrolet for the working person, you could have the Cadillac for the wealthy person, you could oh, have man. you could have different cars, all of which had a different attributes. If you had an engine that could power all these attributes. So you could have a long Cadillac with, with a heavy body that went, you know, sixty and seventy miles an hour um, and was a status symbol, you know, and you could have an Oldsmobile for your you know, and a Buick for your doctors and your lawyers. And really they saw a way of kind of creating a market for each mm-hmm. kind of car that they could produce. Well, the Model T basically was the same car for everyone. It, we hadn't invented the uh, kind of consumer market. and they. Yeah, it was a know, purely utilitarian car. Right it was, <laughs> exactly. It was a utilitarian car. got you around. It was perfectly efficient. But, um, you know, the big transformation of American culture was... This creation of this huge consumer economy that depended on you throwing out a car every five years or three years or two years as a status symbol. You wanted a new car with a new model, a new body, different colors, and big, heavy, you know, um, engines that could go faster or go, you know, go at four speeds rather than three. There were all these kind of attributes you could add on to these big engines, that were basically driven by a market not because of necessity but they all depended on, on having this additive to lead so that was one way we introduced literally you know millions and millions and millions of tons of this toxin into the environment mm-hmm. on, the gra- on the ground of everything in the air we breathe into the tunnels into the soot that landed on kids the of yeah. cells um, the other big uh, you know, the attribute, uh, attribute of lead is that when you oxidize it with certain kinds of um, with basically horse manure, if you let it kind of ferment with horse manure, sure. uh, it, it creates something called like you do. Um, lead carbonate, which is a um, white powdery stuff that you can add to linseed oh. oil and create a very white, white paint. Okay, so, so, so that's how it paint. gets in the paint? That's okay. right, it gets in as a pigment. Uh, in the paint. And it's not that there weren't other paints or there were other pigments, but you had large companies that had were mining companies that needed to produce lead because they had these lead mines and wanted mm-hmm. to sell it. And yeah. uh, this was a great way of getting rid of the lead. You could mine the lead and you could put it in paint and people would paint their walls with it and it would never be recycled. You'd always have a, a market for your lead. It's unlike things like Lead batteries. Which, if you took a battery which was made out of lead, um, you could recycle the lead once the battery wore out. You could melt it down, but once it went into paint, it vanished. So you had this kind of a whole set of kind of internal dynamics that were not natural in any sense. It wasn't like we needed this, but it was kind of intrinsic to the interests of companies that where they had mines that were producing lead. And if they only had a market in recyclable lead, they never had a demand. And if there wasn't a war where you needed bullets, or if there was a depression when you didn't need a, when people couldn't buy cars and therefore batteries, if there were these kind of cyclical events that would change the market, they would put their, their literally their minds out of business. And since they would lose their miners, their, their towns would dissolve, their mines would flood. And they couldn't just respond to markets because it took Mm -hmm. a long time to get the miners back, to make the um, mines work again. So you had to have a constant outlet for this stuff. Uh, Lead pipes were um, useful in certain ways because they're very malleable. You can move them and they're easily malleable. But um, they're not better than copper. They're worse than than copper because they kind of bend and get corroded. Right. Copper doesn't and um so there was a big marketing effort to push lead into all the new homes that were being built by these companies that had to produce the stuff it was a ready market that really literally buried your lead your this lead in the housing walls so you know that's the kind of situation that flint was in it was a unfortunately it's a city that suffered from all forms of pollution uh the lead from the battery manufacturers for the cars, Mm -hmm. uh, the lead for the gasoline that went into the cars, uh, the lead that polluted the rivers from all the, you know, paint companies that were producing the paint Mm -hmm. to cover the cars that were being produced in Flint. Flint was a big Chevrolet manufacturing plant. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have this, you know, this collision of a history in which lead was central the whole identity of this GM city, the city built around General Motors. Uh, That's a sad history of Flint, where you have this, it's in some sense, not just a little mistake, it's a big historical representation of everything that's wrong about the way we handle, we've handled the last century of industrialization.
2: I know in your book, Lead Wars, you explore the political and racial factors that also create those health disparities, especially in industrial pollution and negative environmental exposures. Can you talk more about these factors and how they interact with each other?
3: As I mentioned before, lead has been understood to be a childhood poison literally since 1904 when the first studies were done showing that kids who touched walls or who got dust lead dust on their hands from the walls because the paint flaked or the paint... Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, that when they suck their hands, when they suck their fingers or put their thumb in their mouth, they accumulated lead, and it was identified in as early as 1904 by the lead paint industry, actually, that lead was in what they called a deadly, dead, deadly cumulative poison. So the kids who are most vulnerable, the kids who live in environments in which... The housing is disintegrating. The housing is mm-hmm. old. The housing is decrepit. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the kids who are most at risk from the paint itself. Um, now, the problem always was from the first that the kids were most vulnerable. Therefore, were the poorest kids, the kids who were living in housing that was slightly older, that couldn't be maintained, that had absentee landlords, that were unwilling to fix leaks and therefore the paint was coming off the walls or was they had repainted recently so it was getting old and chalky so the kids who have always been vul- vulnerable were were poor kids um, in Baltimore they were in the early 1900s where we started experiencing our first, lead epidemic lead poisoning epidemic when kids were being brought to Johns Hopkins and to various clinics with going into convulsions and comas they were largely immigrant kids um, because at that point um, most of our African American population was living in the south in rural areas of the south we hadn't seen the huge migration of African Americans into Baltimore to other northern cities the poor the poor people were were Italians were. Irish were kids who were coming over on um, literally that that generation's immigrant. Uh, so they were the kids who were coming into the clinics. Um, they were all poor, and the kids were going to convulsions. The uh-huh. um, in beginning, really in the nineteen twenties, we started seeing the you know the creation the mass mi- migrations of people from the south um, first uh From the rural south, where you know uh, sharecroppers used to live on farms doing a lot of their planting and and mm-hmm. uh, and and sowing for the old plantations that no longer existed, uh, they were being moved out by the introduction of all sorts of um, things like uh, big harvesters, giant harvesters that you know could replace the little family farm mm-hmm. and therefore these harvesters. Would literally plow over, um, plow over farms that used to be little individual plots, and these farmers who were scattered over this land were really being displaced. They're being pushed off by, uh, by the introduction of these huge machines that needed to go over, you know, hundreds, you know, hundreds of yards or Mm -hmm. miles, miles in a straight line, and just never even stop for houses. They just would push it out of the way. Oh, Oh, wow. well, no, they're different. They're very stories of people who woke up in the morning and saw the landlord who was, had rented them or was sharing the crop with them, so to speak, letting them, you know, plow the land for a little bit of the crop. Um, literally standing outside the door of, of, of homes of shacks and telling them that they had, giving them tickets and saying they had to get off the land by the afternoon because they were going to plow it over and they were just going to move people out. So you saw this mass migration from Mississippi, from Alabama all along up to Chicago, um, from Georgia and South Carolina up to New York and Newark and Baltimore. So this mass movement of people who were being pushed off who the economies of the South had depended on to do the work for virtually nothing but who are now in the way and so they literally—you saw this, what was called the first, mar, the first uh, African American migration, um, where you saw you know, tons of, you know, people, women and children and parents and old folks and and kids you know, and and men being literally displaced, um, being moved into urban centers, uh, Newark, you know, Penn Station, all these. Uh, um, uh, Names that we now know as uh, kind of train stations, or in some sense, were the migratory patterns of, of, of large numbers of people.
1: And they're not moving into brand spanking new buildings. You got it.
3: They're being moving, moved into segregated neighborhoods. They're moved into uh, crowded neighborhoods, the oldest neighborhood. Uh, they're being moved into um, uh, alleys, and they're moved into... Um, you know, tiny, tiny communities in which they jam together, and in which they're um, unable to move out because of prevailing segregation in the country, in the country, throughout the country, uh, both legal and de facto. And they're living in uh, houses that are owned by others, who in which they depend upon a landlord, who you know is just milking that property as much mm-hmm. as they can uh, for rents from as many people as they can get into mm-hmm. that property. And you see you know, the creation of the modern, you know, urban urban slum. Um, you know, these are vibrant neighborhoods in certain ways, but the people are living hard lives. Mm-hmm. And um, so you start seeing the collision of both poverty, extreme poverty, which was always a problem for kids with lead, po- you know, who made the kids most vulnerable to lead poisoning, um, with race and racism, and that was a deadly combination because. Once the kids were identified um, uh, as being victims of lead, they were also seen as being the perpetrators. There was mm. no, they had Blame no the victim power. They were blaming the victim. You know, why don't the parents, you start seeing in the literature arguments about why, um, why people are getting, why their children are dying. The parents aren't taking care of them. They're uh-huh. not watching them. They're not, you know, keeping them away from They're not having them wash their hands. Don't they know that they shouldn't let them suck their fingers? Mm-hmm. Don't they know they should fix the wall? That kind of thing begins to happen. You know, you start seeing this very strong racist and
0: mm-hmm. victim-blaming
3: culture. Uh, there's some one, uh, horrifying documents, uh, one of which is a letter from... Uh, the head of the Lead Industries Association, which is a trade association that represents all the lead interests and are really behind promoting lead mm-hmm. paint, really want to promote lead paint and make it u- useful and say that you can't use any other, don't use any other. Um, they represent companies like the National Lead Company. You may you may even have seen the Dutch Boy Painter. Have you ever seen the Dutch Boy Yeah, paint? Yeah, yeah. yeah the, he, that was their symbol. They used to give out... Little little trinkets to kids with a Dutch boy painter on it to tell them that lead was actually good for them, not even bad oh, for them. They had advertisements goodness. from advertisements where they said lead is good Oops. for your health. Lead helps your health. Uh, well, lead protects you. It's, it's,
2: really funny, it's so funny. It's funny that you're talking about this now because I don't know if you've watched. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson has done, you know, the Cosmos series. He rebooted it from um, Carl Sagan. And he actually has an entire episode on lead and gasoline and that's how, it. yeah, it's actually really, really good. And he does it in a way that's very easy to understand. But one of the things that um, this, he tells the story about this scientist um, who fought the lead industry and how they
3: Needleman. were just. Herbert Needleman?
2: Yeah, where he, he was trying to isolate basically like, he, he had a really hard time figuring out like what the pollutant, he, he was trying, I can't remember how, what it, he was trying to basically figure out how to make a room where you could get no contamination when you're looking at different, um, microscopic specimens. And he couldn't do it because there was lead in the air. And like, (laughs) and so that kind of led him down this path of just like, why is there so much lead in the air? And, you know, Um, but it was interesting because, you know, in, at least in the episode, they talked extensively about how, you know, you had this very powerful industry, Mm -hmm. um, who was trying to basically stifle his scientific Mm -hmm. work. And he went and tried to advocate, you know, for more regulation on the, in the lead industry. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they were trying very, very hard to, you know, discredit him and, um, you know, prevent the dissemination of his, um, scientific work. So.
3: Yeah. Well, that was a long history that goes way back, but you know, just the attempt to discredit, to deny mm-hmm. the existence of the problem, to tell it's a parent's fault to do all these things. But when they're talking internally, what they do is they acknowledge their role in it, but they say they can't do anything, anything about it. Because after all, the victims are only really, as they call them, Negro and Puerto Rican children. This is uh, the movie in which they say, "These are Negro and Puerto Rican children." And, you know, we can't solve that problem. It's a problem of their housing. It's a problem of their neighborhoods. It's a problem. It's you know, this is of un- what they call ineducable people, oh. ineducable people that can't be educated to avoid lit. So you just see the horrible racism that kind of undergoes. Yeah. Undergirds all of this problem as it emerges in the 50s. And they say, yeah. lead poisoning will be with this population for the next 50, they say, next 50 hundred years.
1: So, um, now that we kind of know a little bit about the historical context and we understand that this is a problem and it has been a problem for a long time, what kinds of public health interventions, um, can we do to help correct the problem on on a broad scale and then one of our listeners wanted to ask because she's a parent um natalie wanted to know what are some common sources of lead contamination now that parents should be um aware of
3: well i mean the broadest focus is that we have to really detoxify the environment i mean there's no it's we can't just patch over or paint over a problem. As long as the lead is on the walls of a home, it's a potential ongoing hazard. It's an ongoing injury because even if you patch over it, sooner or later somebody's going to nail a wall, nail a, you know, a nail into a wall, is going to put a new socket in the wall, is going to try to knock down a you know a wall it's going to try to renovate their house and scrape or paint or do ever do whatever you're going to every time you do that you release lead oh. and we now know that there's no level of lead that's safe for a child we used right. to it is zero yeah, yeah we used to fit, fool ourselves into thinking well if we could find a, a threshold below with which it's not dangerous a kid could be Safe.
1: But People know, eat 12 spiders a year by accident and I'm we sorry. sometimes, you know, come across uh, arsenic and things in the, in the soil, but zero lead is good. Zero lead.
3: I mean, if you have lead, if a child's exposed at in utero to lead, you can have subtle changes that will affect the development of that child's brain. Uh, if a child has even the smallest amounts, um, if a child has lead, Now, when they're one or two or three or or six months, it has different varying effects that affect literally the life course of the child. It causes dyslexia, um, learning disabilities, lost IQ, uh, slowness in reaction, hyperactivity, um, uh, behavioral problems in school. um, You know, reading issues. It creates a problem for that kid that will haunt them for the rest of their life. It's not like you can cure lead poisoning. Once it, once it affects the neurology of the child, that's it. So mm-hmm. the problem is you don't really know if it's going to affect the child, um, one, until it's really serious. Um, and two, it's very hard once the kids been exposed to say that the problems the kids have is due to the lead. In other words, right, any, right. Any, any individual child they might be slower or smarter than other people for all sorts of reasons, right? Exactly. Um, but uh, you only know that lead is the major issue, that they're slower as a, because you can compare one group of kids who have, you know, lead exposure with kids who don't have any lead in their blood, and then you can compare them, and you see that the kids who have, even though they exist and they're absolutely similar in every other respect... Right, mm-hmm. even if they're the same socioeconomic groups, same racial groups, same you know ages, whatever you want to take, is some you uh, live in the same neighborhoods. If one group is exposed to lit and the other group of kids aren't exposed and they're similar in every way, but. The lead kids are going to have money, more problems. As reported in school, mm-hmm. reported by IQ tests, reported reco- re- you know recorded in in disabilities and juvenile delinquency. All sorts of measures are very consistent with the lead exposure. So the you know the the answers that we've come up with until now, which are you know are are better than nothing, but still inadequate, is that we've gotten lead out of gasoline, there's no more leaded gasoline, you know, you, know, you go to a gas station, it says unleaded. Mm-hmm. That's, only, that's the only pump that's there. Um, and that's a product of, of years and years of agitation, fighting the lead industry, trying to get them to stop putting lead into gasoline, trying to get the car manufacturers to produce cars that can run on unleaded gasoline that don't need lead for powerful engines, etc., um, that was one big victory another big victory finally happened and you have to remember this is like 65 70 years after the discovery of this problem so it's not like we can really claim you know wow this is a great victory because right. you know why we knew when the pro- we knew for 65 years what the problem was and we we were it, there was resistance to it. We got gas out of and we got lead out of um, paint and mm-hmm. finally in, in 1978. Uh, that's very late in history. So we have, yeah, we've we've addressed it by getting it out of those substances, and that, it, it, but it's still on the ground. It's still in the older housing. It's still on the walls of housing. That's uh, that's something like you know, I don't know how many millions of kids live in that right now, but we still have 500,000 kids. The CDC estimates that have elevated, high, what they call. Elevated blood lead levels because mm-hmm. there's still there's wow. still danger. I mean, there's still these kids are in continual danger of having a problem. So we have 500,000 kids that are still there. So the the real answer ultimately has to be getting the lead off the walls, getting the lead out of the pipes, and doing that systematically throughout the country. Uh, the problem is the it's not it 's not even the financial cost it 's really kind of the political and social will um, mm, you know, which mm-hmm. is still the central problem we still don't value these kids enough and we don 't want to look at the problem and we don't value the you no know, we we say it 's too costly um, you know it 's a kind of odd idea that somehow it 's too costly to take to detoxify a child 's house but mm-hmm. it 's not too not too costly to do a thousand so, of useless things in our in our culture.
2: Right. So in that same vein, um, another one of our listeners, um, Samreen, she asked, what does successful advocacy and policy work for environmental justice look like when you're dealing with marginalized communities?
3: Well, it, it means being out there in the political arena. That's part of it. And making sure that you educate people and you make sure people understand that They have a right to a clean environment. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you have you they, you know, people have to know that this is not just something that experts can handle. The experts will only do what experts can do. You know, in other words, when they're pressed to do it. In other words, Mm -hmm. when a community demands, like you saw in Flint. I mean, that issue never would have arisen if we had depended just on the experts. Exactly. I mean, Mona Hanotishi is a wonderful woman, but she, it was brought to her attention by that community. Mm-hmm. That community's organizing, that community's saying, look at this water. This water's filthy. And mm-hmm. it, was really the, it was really the movement from the ground below that forced, you know, I don't want to say forced because she was not resistant, but that brought it to the attention of the public. That brought it to the attention of the scientific community, and that also brought it to the attention of a few very committed, um, you know, doctors and industrial environmental engineers mm-hmm. that could do the measurements. Uh, so, you know, what has to be understood is that we often depend, We're often told, "Let's wait for an expert to tell us that there's a problem here." It's really the expert that depends on the communities to tell them there's a problem here. If you look yeah. for the experts, they it's won't really get to you. And so, you know, it, that's really the, the importance of, you know, the social movements and the social attitudes about how you go about creating change. And people have to understand, one, that there are problems here. And they mm-hmm. have to s- trust their own sense and they also have to make demands. They have to make political demands. And if they're, you know, they have to make political demands that become a public issue, get the newspapers involved, get you know community groups having, you know, s- you know signs outside of congressmen's offices. Uh, this is what creates change. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether that answers it, but you uh, know, uh, social activism is absolutely. It's not just a sidelight, I and mean, it's not just a. Um, Kind of, it's not just an extraneous event that causes trouble, so to speak.
2: Right, it really right. To, it has
3: to be understood as a positive attempt to empower, empower both communities, but also empower the concerned professionals. There are plenty of concerned public health people who would love to do a study of a community and to document the damage done, um, but are working in institutions and in health departments and in state bureaucracies that really have to respond only to the politics of the moment and if the politics of the moment are, hey, there's no problem here and you're just a bunch of troublemakers, you know, and, you know, let's just ignore them and, Mm -hmm. you know, then, then they won't be empowered. But if the, if it's enough of a pressure, the politicians and the public health people Will feel though you know some decent politicians, but also a lot of very decent professionals who are ecstatic about the opportunity to help communities. That's why they usually go into public health.
1: Is there any way um, or, or for people to look up what the lead exposure uh, or lead levels are in their community? Like what kinds of ways if someone is listening to this and they're interested and they're like, huh? I wonder what my community is like. Um, Have there been any exposures or have there been any elevated lead levels? Where would I find that information?
3: Well, uh, it wouldn't be that easy. Uh, It depends on your community because all of the gathering of data um, is largely based upon local, uh, local decisions. Um, you know, public health in the United States, ironically, I mean, it's hard to remember this and you certainly won't because you, you sound like you're young, a lot younger than I am. But um, we did not have an EPA. We did not have a federal presence that regulated health.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually,
3: until, Nixon until created yeah. the EPA yeah. in
2: 1970.
3: Good old Love Canal. <laughs> right. right. Well, the uh, Love Canal comes afterwards, but, you know, the EPA in 1970, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, is in 1970, NIOSH is formed in 1970, the Mine Safety and Health Administration is all formed in 1970. These were the first times when the federal government had a systematic responsibility to regulate the environment in the workplace. So we don't have a long history of federal data collection. Uh, We have our CDC.
1: So it could be at the local level, like local health departments or local studies being done depending on on the population and the area. So I guess, you know, if anyone knows of a really good resource uh, that's listening to this. You can message us, tweet us, whatever, because I'm interested too. Um, You can probably, you know, start by looking at your local health department and. uh,
3: Yeah, no, this, that's, you have to press the local health department. Some, some states are better than others and uh, the CDC gathers statistics and, you know, has a kind of, it's, it's not a very well defined obligation on the part of states to send information like this to the federal government, mm-hmm. but they do gather statistics, and periodically they have large statistical gatherings. But it's usually not at the micro level that you'd really mm-hmm. that would be useful to um, a local community. They might gather statewide statistics on the number right. of kids who are reported to have elevated blood lead levels, but it's you know you don't have the kind of micro information that you would like to have.
2: Um, on a lighter note, um, we usually always ask our guests at the end of um, the interview what they're currently reading or enjoying, whether that's public health or otherwise. So what are you reading or enjoying currently?
3: Well, let's see. Uh, the last three days, I've been spending time with a doctoral dissertation on the Cameroonian health care system. Uh, interesting. That's <laughs> yeah, actually pretty interesting, but the, the development of their health care system after um decolonization so on one level i read these very technical texts because i have doctoral students who are yeah. mm-hmm. you know, doing all sorts of strange strange studies um but i've also been re- reading um a lot of um uh, a lot of mysteries about world war ii Ooh. um
1: like historical and, fictions or or well,
3: yeah they're historical fiction and you know I, i'm just blanking but there's a whole uh, what is his name uh, books by Alan First, uh F-U-R-S-T. Okay, they're all these historical fictions about before and after World, before, during, and after World War II, and the politics of Europe. I'm going to add that to my you reading really, list. You, you will enjoy them. They're the best. Uh, Best written books I've seen, heard, I've read in years. Uh, so they're really
0: oh wow.
3: Uh, they're really beautifully written, and they have enormous oh, well, amounts well of to
0: check that uh, out. enormous
3: amounts of kind of great historical data in it. That's Ooh. actually pretty accurate, as far as I can tell. So, yeah, that that's well, thanks kind of, for sharing. <laughs> that's kind of weird stuff I read. But yeah, if you want. No, to that's read, fine. Want to we want we
1: like finding out that scientists are people too. Yeah,
3: yeah exactly. Uh, yeah, you can read my, my doctoral dissertations on Cameroon. That's, that's the other thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Light, some light bedtime reading. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You
3: got it. <laughs> that's, that's it. Awesome.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk to us today. And um, yeah, have a lot of fun reading the rest of those books. Of it sounds really engaging. <laughs> so I hope
1: you learn about the uh, health system in Cameroon. Okay.
3: Yeah. I've learned a lot. Yes, I have. Okay. Listen, have fun. And I look forward
1: All to right. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. All right, bye. bye. bye Yep.
3: Bye.
0: All
1: right. Just a quick drop in to follow up on a couple things mentioned in today's interview with Dr. Rosner. So here are some more interesting facts about lead. We have evidence that was used all the way back to ancient Rome in things like makeup, dinnerware, and paint. It was even used in the pipes that moved water throughout the Roman Empire.
2: I have heard that.
1: So it's no surprise that it ended up in compounds all the way up to modern times. So why paint? Well, like Dr. Rosner said, lead to carbonate was used to create a nice white or cream color as well as to decrease the amount of time required for paint to dry and make it more moisture-resistant, which also made it useful for toys and other household items. But we didn't have really, really conclusive scientific evidence until the early 20th century that exposure to this heavy metal causes health problems like convulsions, comas, and death. Hmm. Infants and children who are exposed to toys painted with lead may... Well, painted with lead paint, not just painted with lead, um, may suffer, suffer physical and mental developmental issues, behavior problems, and lower IQ levels. Despite the regulations, toy companies like Mattel have recalled toys for containing lead as recent as 2007. What? Yeah, because I guess the... The regulations in other countries like oh. China aren't as strict as they are yeah, here. you hear that. And outsourcing, yeah. It, that, that makes sense. It ends up happening. Oh, boy. Now, lead was added to gasoline to reduce engine knocking and improve the performance of engines. For me, I'm not a mechanically inclined person at all. Like, whatever happens under the hood might as well be magic to me. Um, if you were to tell me it was magic, I would, I would believe you. Uh, So I actually did some research on this. But what it does is essentially it allows – it it has to do with the compression of the gasoline Mm -hmm. and making sure that it ignites at the right temperature. Um, However, the problems with lead and gas were known even before the oil companies started using it.
0: Hmm.
1: A research division of General Motors received a letter from a German scientist in 1922 saying the use of lead was – (laughs) <laughs> saying the use of lead, a creeping and malicious poison, what had killed a fellow scientist and warned them against using it. They said, nah, and went ahead using it.
2: Hey, we wanna make some money, so screw science. We're moving then, ahead.
1: One of the assistants uh in the General Motors research division came down with lead poisoning.
2: Hmm. Do you think that's correlated? <laughs>
1: And that was 1922. In 1925, the Public Health Service had a conference to talk about the problem of leaded gasoline, in which several people testified that oil companies could produce an equally efficient product without lead and simultaneously reduce the danger to people and the environment. The Public Health Service continued to allow leaded gasoline on the market for the next 50 years.
2: Oh, my goodness, guys.
1: Yeah. It's public health has its dark past. Yes, it does. You can still find leaded gasoline in some engines like ATVs, aircraft, racing cars, farm equipment. Ooh. And marine engines in the United States. Guys, we love lead. That's, you
2: know, it's growing up with a family member that lived on a lake. I remember seeing, you know, oil on the water. That, ooh. Gosh. And we used to swim in that
1: water. Oh, boy okay well i'm glad that we know a lot more than what we did a hundred years ago, and although indeed we knew about I, I it a hundred years ago I was just, just we didn't say do that. anything about it a hundred years ago, and it makes me wonder kind of what kind of things do we know about now
2: kind of <laughs> that it, art
1: banned or yeah. banned in other countries.
2: Well, that's just kind of. It reminds me of like, um, the, um, like cosmetics, BPA,
1: and plastics, and other yeah. things like that that we're kind of learning about now. And you, you see, taking taken out of more and more plastics, but um, is it, has it been banned?
2: I feel or like is it's it just been,
1: discouraged.
2: I think it's been banned in some states, like California, definitely has banned BPA, but look, nationally, I, yeah, I don't know if it's nationally though. Okay,
1: I might have to have a follow-up to this follow-up. Follow-up
2: follow to the follow-up, and then there's another one. That'll follow-up. be for our
1: next interlude yeah. episode. okay. Okay, so now we have some content for that. <laughs>
2: great, um, pl- great job yeah. planning that.
1: Anyways, that was just a few notes on a uh, few things that we talked about with Dr. Rosner.
2: Thanks for doing that, Gwen.
1: The passage of the novel Bleak House by Charles Dickens was read by Mill Nicholson for LibriVox, an audio service made for free by volunteers who read books in the public domain. It's like Audible, but completely free. They aren't even involved in making this plug. I just wanted you to know about it. YouTuber Tom Moore posted the video from which the audio was pulled. We would also like to thank Anne for her suggestion to look at environmental health and for mentioning the London fog of 1952. If you have a topic suggestion, reach out to us on our website at www.viral-pod.com. We read them all. Really and truly, we do.
2: Thanks for listening to Viral. This show is written and produced by Lindsey Grove, that's me, and Quinn Lundquist. Today we had technical assistance from Will Baldwin. Our theme is Take Your Medicine by the Quick and Easy Boys. For more information about the show and to get notifications about future episodes, visit www.viral-pod.com and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and one last thing, please remember to wash your hands.